This is Space Time, Series 20, Episode 44, for broadcast on the 7th of June 2017. Space Time is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You can download Space Time as a free twice-weekly podcast just about everywhere, including iTunes, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, Bytes.com, SoundCloud, YouTube, Audioboom, direct from spacetimewithstuartgary.com, or from your favourite podcast download provider. Spacetime is also broadcast coast-to-coast across the United States on Science360 Radio by the National Science Foundation in Washington, D.C., around the world through TuneIn Radio, and as in-flight entertainment aboard Virgin Australia. Coming up on Spacetime, detection of a third gravitational wave, the Juno mission reveals a whole new Jupiter, and halos discovered on Mars widens the time frame for potential life. All that and more coming up on Space Time. Welcome to Space Time with Stuart Gary. Gravitational waves from colliding black holes have been detected for a third time. The new detection, reported in the journal Physical Review Letters, was made on January 4, 2017. Gravitational waves are ripples in the very fabric of space-time. They're caused by events such as the collision or merger of very massive, dense objects, such as black holes and neutron stars. As with the two previous gravitational wave detections, this third discovery, called GW170104, was made using LIGO, the Advanced Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory. It was achieved during LIGO's current observing run, which began on November 30, 2016. The new discovery provides further confirmation of the existence of stellar-mass black holes more than 20 times the mass of the Sun. It's a mass range scientists didn't even know existed prior to the LIGO observations. This gravitational wave event was generated by the collision of two stellar-mass black holes to form a larger single black hole of about 49 times the mass of our Sun. These are collisions producing more power than is radiated as electromagnetic energy by all the stars and galaxies in the universe at any given time. As the gravitational wave generated by the collision rippled through the fabric of space-time, they caused everything in their path to microscopically contract and expand ever so slightly. LIGO comprises twin gravitational wave detectors, one at Hanford in Washington State, the other in Livingston, Louisiana. And each LIGO detector comprises two 4-kilometre long arms stretching out at right angles from a central laser generator and detector. It works by firing a laser which is split into two identical beams, each of which travels down one of two arms, hitting a reflector at the end and bouncing back. If the laser beams are out of synchronisation when they return to the detector, it means a gravitational wave has passed through the observatory. The two previously confirmed gravitational wave detections were caused by the merging of stellar-mass black holes to create new larger black holes of 62 and 21 solar masses, respectively. LIGO made the historic first-ever detection of gravitational waves back in September 2015, during its first observing run since undergoing major upgrades in a program called Advanced LIGO. The second detection was made a few months later, in December 2015. An additional probable but not confirmed detection was made in October 2015. This newest detection appears to be the most distant yet, with the two black holes that merged located some 3 billion light-years away. 
The black holes in the first and second detections were located 1.3 and 1.4 billion light-years away, respectively. The newest observation also provides clues about the directions in which the black holes were spinning. As pairs of black holes spiral around each other, they also spin on their own axes, like a pair of ice skaters spinning individually, yet also circling each other. Sometimes black holes spin in the same overall orbital direction as the pair moving what astronomers refer to as aligned spins. Other times, they spin in the opposite direction of orbital motion. What's more, black holes can also be tilted away from the orbital plane. So essentially, black holes can spin in pretty well any direction. The new LIGO data can't determine if the recently observed black holes were tilted, but they do imply that at least one of the black holes may have been non-aligned compared to the overall orbital motion. More observations with LIGO will be needed to say anything definitive about the spins of binary black holes. But these early data offer clues about how this pair may have formed. It's the first time scientists have evidence that the black holes may not be aligned. There are two primary models to explain how binary pairs of black holes could form. The first model proposes that the black holes were born together. They formed when each star in the pair exploded as a supernova and then collapsed into a black hole. Because the original stars were spinning in alignment, the black holes likely remained aligned. In the second hypothesis, the black holes came together later in life within crowded stellar clusters. In this event, the two black holes pair up only after they sink to the centre of the star cluster. In this model, the black holes can be spinning in any direction relative to their orbital motion. Because LIGO sees some evidence that the GW170104 black holes are non-aligned, the data slightly favours the dense stellar cluster theory. The new detection will allow scientists to better evaluate which model of binary black hole formation best describes what they're seeing. The study also once again puts Albert Einstein's theories to the test. For example, the authors were looking for an effect called dispersion. Dispersion occurs when light waves in a physical medium such as glass travels at different speeds depending on their wavelengths. It's how a prism creates a rainbow. Professor Albert Einstein's general theory of relativity forbids dispersion from happening in gravitational waves as they propagate from their source to Earth. And just as general relativity predicted back in 1915, 102 years later in 2017, LIGO didn't find any evidence of this effect. So once again, it looks like Dr. Einstein was right. In fact, the authors say they could see no deviation in anything from the predictions of general relativity. And the greater distance means they could make that statement with a far higher degree of confidence. In the next few months, LIGO will be joined by Virgo, a new European gravitational wave observatory. And other facilities in Japan and India will follow soon after. The Indian facility is especially interesting for Australia. You see, that facility was originally offered to Australia, so as to provide gravitational eyes in the Southern Hemisphere to help scientists better localise gravitational wave signals. But sadly, it was turned down by the then Gillard Labor government. Meanwhile, research teams are now working on technical upgrades for LIGO's next run, which is slated to begin in 2018, during which it's hoped the detector's sensitivity will have been further improved. Professor Susan Scott from the Australian National University is Chief Investigator for OSGRAV, the ARC Centre for Excellence for Gravitational Wave Discovery. It was ANU scientists who designed the systems to improve the duty cycle for the LIGO detectors, so that more time can be spent searching for gravitational waves. The OSGRAV team are now working on further improvements to develop advanced technologies such as quantum squeezing for optical devices. This will allow scientists to search for fainter sources of gravitational waves from other types of astrophysical events, such as gravity waves radiated by neutron stars. 
Like black holes, neutron stars are the super-dense stellar corpses of giant stars that have been destroyed in powerful explosions called core-collapse supernovae. Scott says this latest detection raises the possibility that this binary system of black holes formed in the very early universe and could be contributing significantly to dark matter in the cosmos. She says because this heavy stellar mass black hole system is some 3 billion light years away, much further than the two previous gravitational wave events, the discovery highlights the need to continue improving the sensitivity of the detectors to see further out into the universe. This is our third discovery and like the first two, it's a binary system of two black holes spiralling around and coalescing, but... There are some differences too. This event was more than twice the distance of the first two events, so it's much further. The masses involved of the two black holes in the binary system are intermediate between the very big first event and the smaller second event. So we now have a really quite nice range of masses the black hole. And also it was an indication about the possible spin alignment of the two black holes, which we had not had previously. And that's giving you some hints about exactly how they formed, or possibly in this case, where they formed. Yes, exactly. These systems have three kinds of rotations. The two black holes individually have rotation, and then the two black holes revolve around each other. So if they're aligned, then the system has a greater rotational energy, and it takes a little bit longer for them to actually come together. And so we see a little bit difference in the signal to a system where the bins of the black holes are opposite. And yes, it does tell us something about where they're coming from. It suggests that it's possible that these black holes are formed in dense stellar clusters, and they form black holes individually and then slowly come together within that cluster. This mechanism means that it's less likely for the, the spins to be aligned in that case. When you say stellar clusters, because you say dense, does that mean globular clusters is what we're talking about, or open clusters? Uh, I think both, actually. Okay. All right. I was just wondering if that tells us something about how globular clusters were formed then, but if it could be in both, that, that's we know both clusters, globular and, and open, form in stellar nurseries, but I was wondering if that tells us more about them, but maybe not. Well, we, we haven't got that far yet. Yeah. I mean, this is the first indication that we can have these binary black hole systems where the spins are not aligned. Obviously, we want to have further detections to probe further the origin of these types of binary black hole systems. Are they perhaps formed from primordial black holes? That would be a very exciting possibility. Well, that's one of the big questions, isn't it? If they are formed from primordial black holes, what we're looking at are possibly the remains of clumps of population three stars. That's exactly right. And the types of detections we've had, the masses fit into that mass window that would be consistent with, you know, this theory of the black holes actually being a significant portion of dark matter. Tell me a little bit about how these mergers would occur. How do two black holes come together? Well, we think there are, you know, a couple at least, uh, probably more uh, ways where this can happen. It could be in a sort of isolated environment where you have two stars actually rotating around each other in a binary system and they eventually become black holes and form a binary black hole system. The other main mechanism we're thinking about is these dense stellar clusters of various types where the black holes 
uh, form within the cluster individually, but, you know, slowly drift together and eventually become a binary. And the more detections we have and the more we can look at the alignments of the black holes, the better feeling we'll have as to which of those types of formation is perhaps the main one. Does it go any way towards filling in the gaps between stellar mass black holes and supermassive black holes, the types we see at the centres of galaxies? Yes, in fact, the three detections are special for that in that they fall in that in-between range between your standard stellar black holes and the supermassive black holes at the centres of galaxies. And, you know, we've got, I think, of the three detections, three of the black holes, component black holes, are at least 30 solar masses. Considering the number of detections LIGO has now had, it would appear that these sorts of events may be fairly common. That's exactly the conclusion that we're coming to. Um, You know, first of all, we were surprised by the masses of the black holes, but now we can see that they're probably fairly common out there in the universe. So yes, that is already an interesting aspect that's come out of the first three detections. These were again made using LIGO, the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatories in Louisiana and Washington State. LIGO is about to be joined by a number of others, including Virgo. There's one in India as well. It's starting to pick up as a field. Absolutely. Um, Virgo is really more or less coming online now and um, the Japanese have their detector Kagura under construction. And obviously the more detectors we have have the better directionality we have on our detections, which obviously gives us a lot better hold on things like looking for, you know, optical counterparts and that sort of thing. So, yes, it's great to see that the network is building up at this point in time. LIGO India is a little bit further off, but uh, eventually we will have it as well. That was the one we were originally hoping to get here in Australia. There's still nothing in the southern hemisphere, sadly. No, but we're very interested and very active at the moment as a community in Australia in Ausgravel Centre, looking at design aspects for third-generation gravitational wave detectors. And Australia, of course, would be an ideal location to have one of these because, A, we're in the southern hemisphere, and, B, we have the expertise to actually operate one of these detectors. So I think we are very actively pursuing that possibility one way or another. The other aspect, of course, is we have the space. I mean, one of the issues with LIGO India was, you know, there were a lot of people living and... uh, going about their everyday business in the places where they wanted to construct the detector. So that was a major impediment. But we have a lot of space, good space, as you say, with uh, low environmental noise and vibrations, and uh, it would be an ideal spot to have one. From a, a human point of view, what do the gravitational waves appear like? Are they a sound? Are they something that just... How would you describe them rather than me suggest anything? Yes, well, we do describe them as listening to the universe so they are akin to to sound in in that sense and now we've opened up this new window i mean before we could look at the universe you know with optical radio radiation etc but now we can listen to it in an entirely new window which is not part of the electromagnetic spectrum we talk about the sound of the sun being like a very deep bell sound a bell ringing what does a gravitational wave sound like well the classic sound for these binary black hole in spirals that now I think everybody around 
around the world is practicing is the chirp sound. So as they get closer and closer, they're spinning, uh, orbiting faster and faster, and the, the frequency goes up, and you get this beautiful chirp sound. And so that is the signature sound of a binary black hole. So that's one sound. But, you know, obviously if we have like a continuous wave source, then it will sound different. As well as black holes, these things could also come from neutron stars as well, couldn't they? That's right. So the continuous waves that I was referring to were like from possibly an isolated neutron star which has some kind of asymmetry. And that could be some kind of deformation in its crust or a very minute, tiny mountain on, on the star. And as it's rotating, then the change in the, in the mass distribution with each rotation will actually produce a continuous stream of gravitational waves, albeit, of course, much fainter than what we'd get from a big binary black hole system coalescing. How does LIGO work? Well, LIGO is a observatory of two detectors in the United States. They're both built in an L shape and they uh, consist of vacuums in both high level vacuums in both of the arms and we have mirrors suspended at the ends of the arms and we shine laser beams from the centre of the L shape down each arm and if a gravitational wave passes through the detector then it will alternately stretch one arm and then the other and we'll be able to see this in the interference pattern of our laser beam as it returns um, to the centre of the interferometer. And that's really where Australia comes into the whole thing too, developing the equipment to test those interferometers, isn't it? That's right. Australia's been very active in assisting and developing um, components of these detectors in terms of optical configuration and isolation and performance. And we've been doing that a very long time. So we're centrally embedded in the project and we continue to be active in that area. But we are also active on the other end of it too, which is the analysis of data coming from the detectors and also the consideration of modelling of potential sources of gravitational waves. A while ago, when the first two gravitational waves were detected, there was also hints of a possible third happening. I take it that was never, there just wasn't enough information to confirm that? That's right. I believe that was actually in October 2015. So between the first sort of golden event and then the Boxing Day event. And yes, I think we really believe that was another binary in spiral, but we just did not have the same certainty of the other three detections to actually, you know, go out and claim it. Yeah, it didn't make the golden five sigma rule. That's right. That's exactly right. So it, it, it probably was one, but we like to be very sure with our detections. <laughs> How does all this make you feel? Well, I think I've been in a state of excitement since the 14th of um, September 2015. I mean, Having worked in the field, having worked in general relativity theory uh, all my career, it's an amazing accomplishment to see our collaboration actually detect these gravitational waves. And what's even more amazing from my perspective is the fact that, you know, with each one of these detections, we are pushing and probing general relativity theory itself further and further. And incredibly, so far, it's passing all those tests remarkably well. Not bad for a theory which is 100 years old. That's exactly right. This is a 100-year-old theory and by one person. And, you know, we're, we're looking out to 3 billion light years and it's still holding up. I mean, it's extraordinary achievement. And, uh, you know, obviously there's been a lot of theory developed and attempted since, but really nothing much compares 
with what an achievement the general theory of relativity was by, by Elbert. What do you think gravity is? I think gravity is the symbiotic relationship between matter and space-time. And this has been encapsulated beautifully by Einstein's theory. So we have matter and energy curving space-time and space-time reacting back on matter and telling it how to move. So we have this beautiful um, symbiotic relationship between the two. What does that do to the theoretical graviton then? Would a graviton exist or wouldn't it be necessary? Well, we do have a theory of the graviton and that's actually something that with our detections we, we try to place limits on the graviton, but... I guess we're really still a long way off being very definitive about that at this stage. Because gravity, as the oldest of the forces, it separated very early on from the other three, didn't it? Yes, it did. That's exactly right. And actually, that's an interesting point that we expect to be able to really look much further back in the universe with gravitational waves than we've ever been able to do with electromagnetic observations. So we're really wanting to look back at to that very early era, almost to the Big Bang itself. That's Professor Susan Scott, Chief Investigator for OSGRAV, the ARC Centre for Excellence for Gravitational Wave Discovery, and the Australian National University. The first science results from NASA's Juno mission are portraying Jupiter as a complex and turbulent world, with Earth-sized polar cyclones and plunging storm systems travelling deep into the planet's heart. NASA mission scientists also found that the solar system's largest planet has a mammoth lumpy magnetic field that may indicate it's being generated far closer to the planet's surface than previously thought. The new findings, reported in two papers in the journal Science, as well as a 44-paper special collection in the journal Geophysical Research Letters, are revealing a whole new side to the gas giant. The Juno mission to study Jupiter's origins, composition, internal structure, magnetic field and turbulent atmosphere was launched from the Cape Canaveral Air Force Base in Florida way back on August 5, 2011, on a five-year journey to Jupiter. The spacecraft achieved Jovian orbit insertion on July 4, 2016. The newly published findings are based on the probe's first data collection pass, which flew to within 4,200 kilometres of Jupiter's swirling cloud tops on August 27, 2016. Juno's principal investigator, Scott Bolton from the Southwest Research Institute in San Antonio, Texas, says while scientists knew going in that Jupiter would throw up some curves, there's so much unexpected going on that researchers have had to take a metaphorical step back and really begin to rethink Jupiter as a whole new world. Among the findings that are challenging pre-existing assumptions are those provided by Juno's imager, JunoCam. The images show both of Jupiter's poles are covered in Earth-sized swirling storms, densely clustered and rubbing together. Bolton admits scientists are puzzled as to how these storms could have formed, how stable their configuration is, and why Jupiter's north pole doesn't look identical to its south. Scientists are also questioning whether they're seeing a dynamic system which will continue to evolve and eventually disappear over time, or whether, like Jupiter's famous great red spot, these are stable configurations, with the storms continuously circling around one another. Also surprising was the fact that Jupiter's signature bands disappear near its poles. 
Another surprise came from Juno's microwave radiometer, which samples the thermal microwave radiation in Jupiter's atmosphere, from the tops of its ammonia clouds to several hundred kilometres deep down inside. The data indicates Jupiter's iconic salmon and cream-coloured belts and zones are indeed mysterious. The structure of the belt near the equator penetrates all the way down, while belts and zones at high latitudes seem to evolve into other structures. The data shows unexpected structures, which the authors interpret as signs of ammonia welling up from deep inside the atmosphere and forming giant weather systems. The data suggests the ammonia is quite variable and continues to increase as far down as the probe's instruments could see. Juno's Jovian Auroral Distributions Experiment, Jade, detects electrons and ions associated with Jupiter's aurora, and the probe's ultraviolet imaging spectrograph examines the aurora in UV light in order to study Jupiter's upper atmosphere and the particles that collide with it. Scientists expected to find similarities with Earth's aurora, but the Jovian auroral processes appear to be far more puzzling. Although many of the Jovian observations have terrestrial analogues here on Earth, it still appears that different processes are at work creating the aurora. For example, Jade observed plasmas upwelling from the upper Jovian atmosphere to help populate Jupiter's magnetosphere. However, the energetic particles associated with Jovian auroras are very different from those that power the most intense auroral emissions at Earth. Dr. Lee Fletcher from the University of Leicester undertook Earth-based observations of Jupiter's atmospheric weather systems, which take the form of dark and light banding of colours as seen from Earth. Closer inspection using the Very Large Telescope in Chile, the Subaru Telescope in Hawaii, as well as NASA's Infrared Telescope facility, reveals that this banding is constantly changing over long time spans. And Juno is starting to reveal the deep processes driving these changes from below the clouds. Fletcher says Juno's data shows that Jupiter exhibits banding all the way down to around 350 kilometres, far deeper than the upper few tens of kilometres scientists previously thought. The deep sounding down through the clouds for the first time has revealed an enormous circulation pattern with a column of rising equatorial gas, suggesting that those cloud-top colours really are just the tip of the iceberg. Dr Jonathan Nichols, who's also from the University of Leicester, monitored Jupiter's polar aurora during Juno's approach to the planet. He observed the impact of the solar wind from the Sun on the Jovian auroras using the Hubble Space Telescope, describing them as the most powerful auroras ever observed by Hubble. Nichols says it's if Jupiter threw an auroral fireworks party to celebrate Juno's arrival, displaying intense pulses of auroral activity triggered during intervals when the solar wind was buffeting the gas giant's magnetosphere. This tells scientists that even Jupiter's mighty magnetosphere, just like those of the Earth and Saturn, isn't immune from the vagaries of the Sun and its solar wind. Juno's measurements of Jupiter's gravitational and magnetic fields will help scientists better understand the structure of the planet's interior and also measure the mass of its core. Scientists think a geodynamo, a rotating convecting electrically conducting fluid in the planet's outer core, is the mechanism for generating the Jovian magnetic fields. Juno principal science investigator Scott Bolton says Juno's gravity field measurements differ significantly from what scientists expected, which has implications for the distribution of heavy elements in the interior, including the existence and mass of Jupiter's core. The magnitude of the observed magnetic field was around 7.766 Gauss. That's slightly stronger than expected and around 10 times stronger than the strongest magnetic fields found on Earth. But the real surprise was the dynamic spatial variations in the field, which were significantly higher than expected in some locations and markedly lower in others. Scientists characterised the field to estimate the depth of the dynamo region, suggesting it may be occurring in a molecular hydrogen layer above the pressure-induced transition to the metallic hydrogen state. 
Prior to the Juno mission, it was already known that Jupiter has the most intense planetary magnetic field in the solar system. Measurements of the massive planet's magnetosphere using Juno's magnetometer instrument are providing new views of the aurora and magnetosphere close to Jupiter that have never been seen before. It's the region where the planet's magnetic field dominates over the solar winds. Juno encountered the planet's giant bow shock, essentially a stationary electromagnetic shock wave, as it entered the magnetosphere on June 24, 2016. Since the spacecraft only encountered one bow shock as it approached the planet, compared to multiple encounters on subsequent orbits, it suggests the magnetosphere was expanding in size at the time. Every flyby Juno executes is getting scientists closer to determining where and how Jupiter's dynamo works. Taking advantage of its unique perspective when positioned above the poles, Juno detected downward-travelling electron beams that shower energy into Jupiter's upper atmosphere, potentially powering the huge auroral activity that Juno saw in its ultraviolet and infrared images. Intriguingly, these electron showers appear to have a very different distribution from those that occur on Earth, and that suggests a radically different conceptual model for Jupiter's interaction with its space environment. Juno's highly elongated and elliptical polar orbit around Jupiter is designed to keep the probe well away from the gas giant as much as possible so as to avoid as much contact with the planet's intense radiation as possible. As part of precautions, the spacecraft's delicate electronics and science instruments are mounted inside a special radiation-resistant safe in order to minimise the harmful effects of the radiation as much as possible. But once every 53 days, Juno's trajectory approaches Jupiter from above its north pole, where it begins a two-hour transit from pole to pole, flying north to south with its eight science instruments gathering data and its camera snapping images. The download of the six megabytes of data collected during each transit takes one and a half days to send back to mission managers on Earth. The next flyby on July the 11th will take Juno directly over one of the most iconic features in the entire solar system, Jupiter's Great Red Spot an anti-cyclonic storm, three times the size of Earth, which has been active for more than 400 years. If you want more space time, check out our blog, where you'll find all the stuff we couldn't fit in the show, as well as loads of images, news stories, videos, and other things on the web I find interesting or amusing. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.tumblr.com. That's all one word and in lowercase, and that's Tumblr without the E. You can also follow us through at StuartGary on Twitter, at Spacetime with Stuart Gary on Instagram, and on Facebook, just go to www.facebook.com forward slash Spacetime with Stuart Gary. NASA's Curiosity rover has detected high concentrations of silica halos in bedrock, indicating the red planet must have had liquid water much longer than previously thought. The new findings, reported in the journal Geophysical Research Letters, dramatically widens the time frame for potential Martian life to have evolved. The Kasai six-wheel rover discovered lighter-toned bedrock surrounding fractures comprising high concentrations of silica, known as halos, inside Gale Crater. The study's lead author Jens Freidenweng from the Los Alamos National Laboratory in New Mexico says the concentration of silica is very high at the center lines of the halos, indicating silica appears to have migrated between very old sedimentary bedrock into the younger overlying layers. The elevated silica in the halos was found over approximately 20 to 30 meters in elevation, near a rock layer of ancient lake sediments that had a high silica content. 
Frydenweng says this tells scientists that the silica found in halos and younger rocks close by was likely remobilized from the older sedimentary rocks by water flowing through the fractures. Specifically, some of the rocks containing the halos were deposited by wind, originally likely as dunes. And such dunes are only likely to have existed after the lake bed had dried up. The presence of halos in rocks formed long after the lake bed dried out indicates that groundwater was still flowing within the rocks far more recently than previously thought. NASA's Curiosity rover mission has already confirmed its primary objective, determining that ancient Mars would once have been suitable for life, had life ever evolved there. Curiosity confirmed that its Gale Crater landing site once held a lake with water that humans could have drunk, but scientists still don't know how long this habitable environment endured. The new findings tell scientists that even when the lake eventually evaporated, substantial amounts of groundwater remained present for much longer than previously thought. This therefore further expands the window when life may have existed on Mars. Whether this groundwater did actually sustain life remains to be seen. But the new study does buttress recent findings by another Los Alamos scientific team which discovered boron on Mars, another indicator of potential long-term habitable groundwater in the planet's past. Curiosity has now been on the red planet for some 1,700 Martian days. It's travelled more than 16 kilometres from the bottom of Gale Crater, part way up Mount Sharp, the crater's central peak. Scientists are using all the data collected by ChemCam to put together a more complete picture of the geological history of Mars. And that's the show for now. You can subscribe and download Space Time as a free twice-weekly podcast through iTunes, Stitcher, Bytes.com, Pocket Casts, SoundCloud, YouTube, Audioboom, your favourite podcast download provider, or direct from spacetimewithstuartgary.com. The shows also broadcast coast-to-coast across the United States on Science360 Radio by the National Science Foundation in Washington, D.C., around the world on TuneIn Radio and as part of Virgin Australia's in-flight entertainment. If you want more space time, check out our blog where you'll find all the stuff we couldn't fit in the show, as well as loads of images, news stories, videos and other things on the web I find interesting or amusing. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.tumblr.com. That's all one word and in lowercase, and that's Tumblr without the E. You can also follow us through at Stuart Gary on Twitter, at spacetimewithstuartgary on Instagram, and on Facebook, just go to www.facebook.com forward slash spacetime with Stuart Gary. Spacetime is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You've been listening to Spacetime with Stuart Gary. Subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, Pocket Casts or Audio Boom. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.